Welcome to The Cutting Room. We'd like to wish you a happy new year and hope your holidays went well. In this week's episode, I'll be interviewing Ken Danziker. Ken is an academic filmmaker and author of The Technique of Film and Video Editing, published by Focal Press. The success of this book has led to four printings, with a fifth one on its way. Now, we've been quite lucky because Focal Press has given us permission to print two of the chapters from his book on dialogue editing and on cutting action scenes. You can find those via our website at www.artoftheguillotine.com in the article section. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interview you. No problem. Your work focuses on the analysis of story and story structure. The majority of this development takes place during the script and editing stages. How did your career evolve or lead you to this point? Well, um, you know, sort of turning back the clock. Essentially, there were no film schools at that point. And so I went off to Boston to a film school and found that I loved everything about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would edit my own work and so on, as well as directing. And I was involved in writing. But as my, you know, I made films both in the States and in Canada, but as I got more deeply involved, I found my niche was sort of storytelling and storytelling from the writing point of view, storytelling from the directing point of view, the storytelling from uh, the editing point of view. And of course, there's different tools involved with each for directing its performance and camera and for editing its image and sound. uh, And of course, for writing its word. But, you know, essentially grappling with storytelling has is the story of my career, uh, whether that's in the business or, or in an academic setting or in my books. Mm-hmm. They are really are trying to articulate, um, you know, the DNA of story. So uh, at each level, I've sort of, you know, all of my writing is sort of a laboratory and the classrooms and the workshops I do are explorations of story. Um, so, you know, really the books are a kind of compendium. They're works in progress on my, you know, how I view story from the writing, directing, editing points of view. So I would say that's the through line of my career Mm -hmm. is grappling with this notion of, of story. You mentioned how there's almost like a different approach when you're in the script phase and the directing phase and in the editing phase. So how does structuring a story different from when you're writing it on the page and when you're cutting it in the editing room? Well, I mean, it's clearly an, an advantage when you've got, uh, you know, material in the editing room and when you've got material on a set, you know, it's, it's really how you organize the material. Um, and, here we come to a kind of understanding of, like, of intention, uh, whether it's the writer's intention, the director's intention, or the the editor in 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 working with the director about intention, and these all have to do with deep interpretation. 
So when we go back to story uh, from a writer's point of view, I mean, to me, the issue with writing a story is that it has to, first of all, there's the issue of are you going to do a conventional story or are you going to do a voice-oriented story? Mm -hmm. So there's different genres involved with both, and there's different ways of treating structure and character with either. So there there are a lot of decisions a writer has to make. You know, is it going to be a classic genre, or is it going to be, you know, a docudrama or a fable or an experimental narrative like Diving Bell? There, the approach to character is totally different, and the approach to structure is totally different. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of what I call gateways for the writer. You know, clearly the idea has to be compelling, but then is it going to be classic or is it going to be voice-oriented? And how do I keep the audience uh, with that? Mm-hmm. And those are structural issues. You wrote the book, The Technique of Film and Video Editing, which expanded on Carl Rise and Gavin Miller's work. Right. The Technique Film Editing. Uh, What inspired you to write this book and its subsequent printings? Well, you know, originally I had been asked to evaluate a directing book. This was, I was in Toronto, it was the mid-80s. I was asked by the publisher to evaluate a proposal for a directing book. And my comments on on the book included the notion that for me, in my work, the best a book that I had discovered about directing was actually the Carl Rise book, Technique of Film Editing, and then subsequently updated by Miller. So what happened was the publisher uh, came to Toronto, met with me, and asked if I was willing to update the Carl Rise book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, and I made a proposal, and you know I spent some months developing the proposal, uh, which was fine with Carl Rise, but at the last minute, he said, you know, the book was written 35 years ago, let it be. So mm-hmm. he, he sort of pulled the plug, but I had done so much work um, developing an approach for the update that what I came to was, I'll propose a book and that I won't call it the cousin of Carl Rise, but we'll call it something else, but it, that's that's how it evolved. I was actually commissioned to write the update, and then Rise pulled the trigger on on the project, and it became uh, the technique of film and video editing. And what was interesting about the book, I when I first wrote it, I wrote it what I would call under the, the aegis of enormous respect and deference for Rise, who I admired both as a writer, a thinker, and as a filmmaker. And so for me, the process, the first draft or the first edition of the book was, you know, kind of careful and respectful and so on and so on. And what I found was I really only took authentic ownership of the book with the second edition and subsequent editions. I could could make it more my own because there was, it's not a matter of disrespect for Rise, but, you know, you sort of get over your your own what I it's, it's a little intimidating when you're updating a classic, 
So I think in subsequent editions, I made the book my own. What I discovered through the four editions is that there was nothing out there about the history of editing. And so the book became the history of editing. And of all my books, even though alternative script writing is perhaps has a greater reputation, the book that is you know, I think most followed worldwide is, is the technique of film and video editing. It's been the most influential with editors and with uh, filmmakers because there's just no, nothing else out there about the history of editing. It's fascinating that you would say that because that's the first thing that I was going to ask you is you've added this huge section on the history of film editing. And that inspired me to put a history section on my webpage. Right. I, I, I really thought that was important. Why is it important for editors to understand the history of editing? Well, editing is the unique um, aspect of filmmaking. You know, it's it's what's different than stage directing. It's what's different than uh, any other form of storytelling. And very early, uh, whether it's Porter or Eisenstein or Vertov, they discovered that it was in the editing that you really had this new dynamic form and the history of editing for me is really the development of a repertoire of tools for the editor to use. I mean, you know, discontinuous editing may have started with uh, Louis Dunwell uh, with Yonshian uh, Dayu, but it's, it's now become you know, I just wrote an article for Cineast called Editing for Subtext. And, mm-hmm. you know, just looking at how editors have gone about it, the, the history is really the toolbox. The history of editing mm-hmm. is the toolbox available to editors. And so it's, it's utterly important, um, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm thrilled that a few people have made films about editors now, that are available on DVD, one in Toronto, one in Los Angeles, that talk with one of them. I was interviewed with another one. I wrote the history of editing section for it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the toolbox for contemporary editors. So you got to know the history. It's amazing that it took so long for someone to document it for us. Up to your book, there was documentation, but no one had really dedicated an entire section of a right, book to it. Like right, that. right. Well, I think that's why the book is valued all over the place. So, you know, I was I was doing a workshop in London the last February, and mm-hmm. one of the participants was an Indian theater film director. And I'm sitting there with him, and he calls a friend of his who is the you know, one of the most important editors in uh, India. And he gets him on the phone. And he says, guess who I'm sitting with? You know, the guy who wrote the book he used. So it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's flattering, but it's, it's, it's also a little humbling when you come across that, you know, to, to say, oh, well, you've had a little bit of an impact. So which is great. You know, I mean, that's, that's why, you know, I think someone like me views these, you know, it's all a laboratory. And the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the more exploration of all these things, then you know, someone who wants to direct or or write or whatever, okay, you've got some tools, and so I, I think it's 
it's a source of enormous satisfaction for me when when I when someone, especially working in the field, says that to me. Now, do you find that experimenting has almost dropped off, or do you find that it's still out there in the field? No, I I think you know there's there's a lot of experimentation. I mean, at the script level, you know, all of these cable television shows like Deadwood or Prison Break or any number of them or The Wire. I mean, that's or Six Feet Under. That's where the experimental writing is going on. And in terms of the edit, even though film is very, very expensive, you know, Rachel Getting Married has a very wonderful, you know, deep feeling coming out of the editing of that film. Uh, I thought there will be blood. You know, the first 14 minutes is a fantastic, and in fact, for the fifth edition of the editing book, there's little question that one of the important films will be There Will Be Blood. You know, uh, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's very adventurous and, you know, bold. So, I mean, there's, you know, we're still early days, you know, in all this. Yeah. So uh, there's lots of room to uh, tell stories differently. You also added a section on Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. And what I was wondering was, what was it about Alfred Hitchcock that you decided to choose him rather than someone like Orson Welles, someone who's also added to film editing? Yeah, well, you know, Hitchcock, I mean, the interesting thing about Hitchcock is he always was interested in playing with the medium. Now, there are other films and filmmakers who play with the medium, like Tickler and Run, Lola, Run. It's a compendium of film techniques that he's being playful about. But with Hitchcock, he does it in a much more orthodox fashion. So you get an entire film dedicated to point of view in Rear Window, or a film dedicated to not, uh, you know, the avoidance of editing, in his, you know, continuous take uh, in the apartment with um, James Stewart. Do you know the film? I mean, one continuous take, you know, where there's a body. Oh, rope. Yeah, rope. Is it rope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, or you know, the 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 editing of a set piece uh, in in Psycho. You know, or you know, there's so many things that he isolated and played with. Uh, that have to do with whether it's pace in the psycho sequence, point of view in mm-hmm. rear window, uh, dream states in vertigo. I mean, the guy simply experimented with all of these things in a far more formal way than uh, Orson Welles did. Orson Welles was very interested in, of course, you know, long takes and and deep focus. And, and of course, Citizen Kane is intriguing in terms of what I call a whole life in two hours and dealing with mm-hmm. the time issue. But those are almost narrative devices uh, rather yeah. than, strictly speaking, editing things, you okay. know. So, so uh, for me, uh, Hitchcock is the only guy who, who really has isolated these different strategies and, and sort of pushed the envelope on each of them. 
So to me, you, you want to learn everything about filmmaking. It's all there in the career of Alfred Hitchcock. Okay, so he's, he's really expanded upon earlier ideas and added new ones. You know? Yes, yes, and, and played with them. So, yeah. you know, he stretched them, he examined them. Some fail, some succeed. But he definitely sort of deepened our understanding of the tools uh, because he was so extreme. In, in the way he approached them. There's two chapters in the third edition on MTV editing. Right. So I'm going to get more into the MTV editing, but one question I have is, what about the internet and YouTube? How is that drastically affecting the way we cut? Or is it? Not yet. Not yet. Um, I think it, it could. I mean, those are our delivery systems that, are telling stories, but they're smaller stories. But the thing about about the MTV style was that it emphasized pieces over the whole. And so we would have a set piece, I mean, whether it's in the Hard Day's Night or Natural Born Killers, there, there didn't have to be a similarity or a progression between these set pieces. So in fact, the set pieces were so strong that they undermine our experience of the whole. I mean, who cares if uh, the characters in Natural Born Killers get away compared to an individual scene there? So there, you know, it's a very exciting use of pace and juxtaposition and very intense feeling experiences, uh, but it undermines what I call uh, linear or progressive uh, rising action storytelling. So it, it's pretty revolutionary to my mind. And an audience has to be willing to accept fragments and enter, exit, re-enter, you know, the experience of a film very differently than with a, mm-hmm. a linear story. So the fact that they are willing to exit and enter and take pieces and reject others and they don't mind means they have to work a little harder. It's a less passive experience. You know, will YouTube, Internet, you know, I haven't seen, you know, yes, there are people trying to string stories together, and yes, they will use a kind of MTV idea, but I haven't seen any narrative invention yet from those. It's the possibility is there, but it hasn't been Yeah, all kinds of possibilities are there, but we haven't really you know, uh, seeing, you know, something as dramatic as that MTV effect. The MTV, you meant, you talk about it as almost being like a, a pastiche of approaches. So you have short filmmaking, right. you have montage, commercial, all this stuff, and it's almost elevated the audience's ability to interpret story. Yes. You also talk about uh, music videos and the music being like a feeling state. Right. And that it, it synthesizes human emotions. Do you find that when it comes to music videos that the music's starting to dictate the editing or is it still even between the music and the video? Well, it's very similar to the principle in documentary where sound organizes meaning. So if you jump over and say a piece of music provides continuity, even if the imagery is different in style or in substance, you know, the, the overall uh, unity is provided by the piece of music. 
And mm-hmm. so we have a lot of freedom to move around within it, and it still has the meta feeling of unity mm-hmm. from the music. So that's the, that's the, you know, let's say the tolerance level is because we have some unity. The tolerance okay. level for varied visuals. Sorry, we have um, a tolerance of the, the variety of visuals and we can put them together? Yes, because we have the, you know, the kind of meta unity from the piece of music. Okay. Yeah, so the sound, just as it, it did in the 30s, you know, the sound will give you unity in a, in a documentary, even if you're moving cross continents that, you know, whether it's a piece of narration or a piece of music, it, it sort of gives the semblance of unity for okay. the viewer. Now, you also talked about MTV editing, sort of like in the book, you start talking about Saving Private Ryan right? and the opening 24 minutes. And, um, now, originally, I'd never associated that with MTV editing. I'd always associated it with attempting to create the emotional feel right. for the, the directions. But then I, I read your chapter on it, and you're, you're going through the how MTV's almost created like an emotional cutting, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering if when we look at early editors like Eisenstein, Pudovkin, experimented with communicating ideas, and I'm wondering if MTV editors are learning to communicate emotions. Well, I mean, there is a feeling level that exists with Eisenstein's work. And the feeling level for Eisenstein, I mean, the juxtaposition is where the ideas come, but the pace is where the emotion is orchestrated. So mm-hmm. when you jump over to Private Ryan, you, you're still getting pace giving you the emotional cues, and the juxtaposition are giving you the shocks. So I would mm-hmm. say the, there's, a, there's a narrative baseline in each of those scenes in the 24 minutes that is accomplished, but feeling is far more important than, mm-hmm. you know, the narrative advance in those two or three minute pieces is very simple. Get out of the boat, mm-hmm. you know, get onto the beach, you know, but mm-hmm. those are very simple. It could be achieved in two shots. But the feeling of what it's like on that beach far supersedes the narrative intent. And that's where the MTV element comes in. So he's using, uh, you know, juxtaposition and pace really to barrage you with feeling. You know, it's, it's yeah. almost impossible in that sequence not to be really, you know, kind of rocked and shocked. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just really unbelievable. So that is an MTV idea, and he's using it to the nines. Well, that's what I'm wondering when, when it, with my, my earlier question, is that it's now becoming something bigger when we see Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we should be re-examining it in a new context other than just MTV, but almost like an emotional cut. Yes. Well, you know, the, emo- the whole issue, and I sort of went in this direction uh, with the fourth edition, the whole thing about pace and the way it's mm-hmm. been used, you know, even if you look at the born material, is mm-hmm. is what I would call emotions above all. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't lose sight of narrative clarity, but it's emotions above all. So, you know, it's it's as if somebody turned up the amperage on dramatic emphasis and says it's all dramatically emphasized. You know, yeah. So we're not getting 
modulation. We're getting a, you know, we're getting an experience that is emotionally quite overwhelming. And pace, pace is pace is the key to emotion. You bring up pace, and it's you talk about how it's changed with like after MTV, we have pacing's done a um, a major shift, and it's a lot of people. A lot of people tend to cut fast and not know why, but there's also these really strong films like Saving Private Ryan. Right. When I go through the history of editing, there's almost an ebb and flow. So we get Sergei Eisenstein, Podovkin, they cut you know really fast and through these emotions and mm-hmm. experiments with montage. But then there's a reaction to that with Tarkovsky. And then yep. we have the ni- 80s and 90s of uh, MTV editing and you know Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. And then we have a reaction with the Russian Arc. So I'm wondering if do you think editing's going to slow down or pacing's going to slow down with that, or do you think it's going to continue to move forward and go faster? If you turn the clock back to someone like F.W. Morneau and his moving camera in Last Laugh and Sunrise and take him through to someone like Kubrick, and if you look at the opening of Full Metal Jacket, you know, the long take, in the barrack. Well, there's a direct line from Murnau to Wells to Kubrick to Tarkovsky, you know, with, you know, and now Sakharov with uh, Russian Ark, where the long take is the, is the challenge. In other words, mm-hmm. can I avoid editing and still involve the audience? Now, the other line of departure is Eisenstein, you know, up to uh, Sam Peckinpah and Oliver Stone and, you know, in the MTV style. And, and of course, the Private Ryan sequence where pace is everything. And now in the Bourne series with Paul Greengrass, who is essentially a docudrama filmmaker and is using pace exactly the way he did in United 93 and and in, in Bloody Sunday. So, you know, those are two opposite threads in the history of film and of film editing. One is the avoidance of editing. The other is the exploitation of editing. And mm-hmm. both of them have coexisted from 1920 on. And my expect, my expectation is they will continue to be the aesthetic, what I call baseline, you know, explorations, both. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think we're going to get people who are going to avoid editing, you know, people like Darren Aronofsky likes to, you know, kind of see what he can do with long takes and then occasionally really zip it up uh, with, with a you know, kind of chaotic editing, a lot of jump cutting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're getting young filmmakers sort of taking both lines of departure, but they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, in, for example, Full Metal Jacket, we've got both. We've got sequences. The sniper attack is very detailed pace and tense and so on. And you know, the opening sequence in the barrack is, is avoidance of editing. So mm-hmm. you, you, you get both lines uh, uh, as an aesthetic tool uh, for exploration. So I, I, I think they will continue um, okay. for filmmakers, yeah. I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone okay. before I wrap up. And 
That is, what is your favorite guilty pleasure film? My favorite guilty pleasure film? Well, um, it's probably Singing in the Rain, you know, which is uh, probably my all-time favorite movie anyway. I'd have to say that can't be a guilty pleasure because that's a really good that's film. That's a real so. pleasure. Right. Yeah, right. it's an amazing film. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interview. And you're very welcome. I'd like to thank Ken for joining me this week. I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.